Thank you, Joel. Good morning. And happy Sunday. <laughs> it's good to have my little brother here and his wonderful wife, Cindy, from Omaha, Nebraska. Wanted to uh, mention something that some of you may not have known about. Last week, for Jim Garrett's 90th birthday, some of us at TCF decided to chip in and get him a brand new suit. And Jim was so touched by this gift that he told the elders Tuesday morning in our weekly meeting, through tears, he said, next time I preach, I'm going to preach in my birthday suit. <laughs> Having learned from both Jim Garrett and Willard Hudson, this morning I'm going to try to put into practice what I've learned, that is that you have a good beginning and you have a good ending and have the two as close together as possible. <clears throat> Reminds me of Chuck Farah's five B's of preaching. Be brief, baby, be brief. Some of you remember Chuck Farah. Actually, it's not going to be that brief, but it won't be long either. So, Reminds me of the actual church newsletter item that I saw once. The Reverend Merriweather spoke briefly, much to the delight of the audience. So hopefully you will be a little bit delighted by the time we're done here this morning. Let's start by looking at our primary text, which we read last week in part one of our message, Wise Living. And today the subtext of our message is redeeming the time. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. That was the subtext of last week's message. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Wouldn't it be nice if as we consider how we are to walk or to live in light of the fact that, in fact, the days are evil, and all that means in our culture today, wouldn't it be nice if there was one simple answer that fixed all this stuff, that provided our answers? <clears throat> it would be nice. But the truth is, there isn't. However, I will argue that our response to the cultural challenges, the evil in our day, is a lot less complicated than we tend to make it. I read a great article just a few months ago that relates somewhat to this idea, and the article was called, Faithfulness is Not Theologically Complicated. The author noted that many who call themselves believers in Christ seem to embrace some of these cultural ideas that we looked at last week that are the complete opposite of what the Word of God teaches. And he pointed out the sad truth that these people tend to be pluralistic regarding salvation, and that, of course, is the idea that there are many paths to God. That's what they believe. They tend to be sexually active as single persons. They tend to be gay-friendly, and here I don't mean appropriately friendly with gays, but supportive of alternative sexualities. They tend to be comfortable with gender fluidity in favor of same-sex marriage and pro-choice. Now remember how last week in part one of our message, Walking Wisely, the Days Are Evil, we looked at the entire context of this chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, our primary text this morning. And we also read earlier in the chapter, verses 5 through 7 of Ephesians chapter 5, which says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure 
or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. Let no one deceive you, Paul wrote. Don't partner with them. In other words, don't join their cause. This is clearly what has happened to some of these people we see who have named the name of Christ, yet seem willing to go with the cultural flow on some of these important issues that we've looked at. This is echoed in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, which says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In this article I referenced, the author says that faithfulness is not theologically complicated. If that's so, and I believe it is true, why are so many who claim to be Christians abandoning fundamental truths from the Word of God in such regularity? He writes that many Christians don't know the basics. That's because to them Christianity is simply about believing in Jesus in some vague sense and loving people in sort of a can't-we-all-just-get-along sort of way. That's where their theology begins and ends. God is love. Of course, Scripture does say that. Jesus was a good teacher, period. That's where their theology begins and ends. And they don't even bother to discover, or they won't admit, what the author of love, the one who created love, God himself, says about what love, agape love, really is. Additionally, there are many Christians who sadly seem to care more about what their friends think about them than what Jesus thinks about them. Either a lack of knowledge on the one hand about the things the Word of God really teaches, or on the other hand an overriding concern about what people think about me, either of these two things can be spiritually dangerous and deadly. Taken together, they're even more dangerous. So this is where we must start with making the best use of the time, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians. We cannot effectively redeem the time unless we have a very solid and foundational understanding of biblical truth. And not just an understanding, of course that's where it has to start, but we must move past understanding it and embrace it, own it in a sense, and have this be our foundational worldview. The way we look at the world and experience the world and interact with the world, if we don't have that firm foundation, we're on dangerous ground and we're at risk of, as Scripture says, shipwrecking our faith. It's easy, as we noted last week, and it is the same today, to preach to the choir today, kind of all of us believers, and rail against the evil that's out there. But let's ask ourselves this morning what I think is an important question. Could it be that we are making a huge mistake when we expect unbelievers to act like believers? Could it be that this is sometimes why we fail to gain a hearing or are ineffective in engaging people in our culture? Now, before you get all worked up, let me add that there are cultural issues, and I'd argue that among those are some of the various sexually related issues that we looked at last week, and maybe abortion as another example, we could give other examples, that where Christians can and maybe should be involved in efforts to impact the culture on these issues. 
because they're common good issues. That is, they negatively affect more than just the individual involved. But there's a difference here, folks. There's a difference between working within acceptable means of societal change, which could include things like political efforts or voting, lobbying, the like, as well as acts of compassion and mercy. There's a difference between those things and when we're sitting across the table from a friend or acquaintance confronting individuals who are not Christians with their sin. Do you hear what I'm saying here? Specific sins are not the thing we should lead with in relating to unbelievers. We cannot and should not expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. In fact, I'd argue that we should expect just the opposite. Why? Because they are slaves to sin. It tells us that in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. And they're just doing what comes naturally. Apart from Christ, we're all slaves to sin. It's only in Christ that we actually and truly have a choice. We can choose to no longer sin because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit as believers. Perhaps this is why Christians so often lose these public relations, if you will, these public relations kinds of battles in our culture. I fully recognize that we can communicate everything just right in speaking truth. We can behave in a godly, winsome way and still have people hate us. That's a possibility. But we don't need to put any other barriers between what we speak and the gospel. But we sometimes refuse to accept something that's nor, uh, something as normal that the culture calls normal that the Bible tells us is sin. In fact, there's a promise from Scripture that we don't often hear. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many churches are you going to hear that in this morning? Perhaps we should quit being shocked or sometimes we're even outraged when we see Christians or we see ourselves ostracized or criticized for expressing a view about sin that Christians have had for millennia. Yet when we, especially in our individual relationships with unbelievers, expect them to behave like Christians, what we're doing there is we're putting the cart before the horse. First comes the new creation in Christ, bought by the precious blood of Jesus, and then comes the new life in him and new behavior and new attitudes which accompanies that redemption, the process of sanctification, the ongoing change in our hearts, which helps us to forsake the sin in our lives. So expecting non-Christians to behave like Christians is a classic example of putting the cart before the horse. You know that uh, phrase, right? The horse is the gospel in this case, and the cart is what naturally follows the gospel, which is our sanctification, the inevitable change which happens throughout our lifetimes in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our behaviors, when we are truly redeemed. I believe that this is at least a part of what it means to live wisely in this evil age. And it's an important part of what it means to make the best use of the time, or redeem the time, as some versions of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16 say. So yes, my brothers and sisters, the days are evil. And no, as we explored last week, we should not participate in this evil. Or worse still, we should not celebrate this evil in any way. We should not approve this evil. We should not partner in any way with this evil. We need to walk in the light as Jesus is the light. 
That means we must not let darkness invade our hearts, our attitudes, our words. That's a big problem these days, our words. We just participate in all the cultural division on social media and in personal relationships. That's not helpful, my brothers and sisters. This we must resist, and this is one of the ways we live wisely. Yet, of course, there is more to living wisely than just resisting the darkness. There's the bringing of light, living in the world as his light bearers. Now, let's admit that it is easy sometimes for us to get discouraged and just kind of give up on this lost world. Things are getting worse, they're getting bad, let's just give up on it. But is that what God really wants from us? Sometimes it's almost as easy to simply reject those who are seemingly the worst of sinners. There's no hope for them. Write them off. After all, doesn't Scripture tell us to avoid sinners? Well, no, it doesn't. Scripture tells us to flee sin, not sinners. How can we make the most of every opportunity if we avoid sinners? How can we be in the world as Jesus spoke of in John chapter 17? Let me read just a few verses from Jesus' prayer to God the Father in which he prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And then, of course, we can match that with Paul's warning to the Ephesians that we read, that the days are evil, a warning that's meant to protect us by giving us advance notice that these things are true. Remember last week when we looked at the illustration that Jesus gave of the blind leading the blind and how both the blind one leading and the one being led will have what happen? They'll both fall into a pit. Now, if as a believer in Christ you can see if your spiritual vision is well-maintained and healthy, the world is still a dangerous place. But as believers, we can see the pitfalls in sin. We can see the pitfalls in worldly things. We can avoid falling into these pits in our evil world as long as we maintain our spiritual vision to the point that we can see clearly where we're going. As long as we allow the Word of God to be what it says it is, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So remember, Jesus specifically prayed these two things about being in the world in John chapter 17. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. This is uh, God the Son, Jesus, praying to God the Father. But that you protect them from the evil one. And secondly, he said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. Them is us. Them is us. So even recognizing the danger, okay, Jesus recognized the danger in his prayer. He said, after all, he said that God would protect them from the evil one. Nevertheless, Jesus clearly meant for us to be in the world. In fact, we're sent into the world. We are to be his witnesses. God's plan was never to remove the disciples or to remove us from danger and opposition, that is to take us out of the world. But his plan was to preserve us in the midst of conflict. How does he preserve us? One way he preserves us is by helping us see, helping us see the pitfalls 
by his word, by his Holy Spirit. The truth is there is an undeniable and really, frankly, unavoidable tension that exists in this whole idea of being in the world but not of it. If we decide that we're going to be in the world without being careful not to be of it, we risk our very faith in Christ. Or to use Jesus' word picture, we risk falling into a pit. If we decide we're not going to be of the world, and as a result of this, okay, I'm not going to be of the world, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to isolate myself for my own spiritual protection. Well, if I do that, I run the risk of maybe my faith remaining intact, but I'm going to be largely useless in reaching lost sinners with the message of the gospel. How can you reach lost sinners with the message of the gospel if you're not with sinners? We are to be people who live in the world, but not of the world. We are to live among unbelieving people, but to live in a very different way. Because we know the days are evil. Because we know the word of God. When we do this, we are never far from some kind of persecution. So one way to avoid persecution is to live away from the world. And can we admit that this sometimes sounds pretty appealing? I got to admit that it is to me. I can get used to the idea of living away from the world up in a mountain cabin somewhere, interacting with people only enough, only long enough to get my food and supplies. If I do that, I won't suffer any kind of social humiliation because I will seldom come into contact with people who might persecute me. As long as I stay off of Facebook, that is. Now, my isolation will keep me far from their thoughts at the same time. But there's a high cost to this approach. It's a cost in our faithfulness to be his witnesses. The other way to avoid being criticized or ostracized or persecuted is to live in the world but remain like the world. If we live just like the people around us, if our words reflect that we think like them, we will not suffer because there's nothing in us that stands out. There's nothing objectionable. There's nothing worth demeaning or criticizing. And the whole time our worldliness, the way we live our lives, will contradict whatever we claim to be true about our faith and about our Savior. So we can escape persecution from withdraw, by withdrawing from the world, by being assimilated by the world. Those of you uh, who are Star Trek fans, we can become part of the World Borg Collective. But God calls us to be salt and light. He calls us to plant ourselves in the midst of a watching world and in the world to live very different lives, to resist assimilation, to winsomely speak words of truth. Now, if we do this, some will see and they'll hear and they'll be persuaded. But many more will see, they'll be convicted, but they will criticize and ostracize or even persecute us. But as Christians, we simply need to expect that. Persecution comes to those who are faithful. Unfortunately, there's no way out of the tension. I'm sorry, there just isn't. We must be in the world to be effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we must also not be of the world for the sake of protecting our faith and to keep ourselves spiritually safe. We have to recognize the ongoing tension between these two uh, opposite things and to seek to find God's straight 
and narrow road. I think we sometimes also overestimate our self-produced influence anyway, but we at the same time underestimate how God can use a willing servant. We look at some of these cultural issues and we think, well, you know, the culture is so far gone, what can we possibly do? And there is a little bit of truth in that. We in and of ourselves can do what? Zip, nada, nothing. Scripture is very clear about that. But God is able to reach into human hearts and make changes. God can take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. We see a lot of hearts of stone these days, don't we? How do we know this? First, because Scripture tells us it's true. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What a wonderful promise this is. All of us in here who are in Christ have experienced that, a heart of stone that now a heart of flesh beats within us. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. What a great promise that is for us, that he will exchange our stony, cold, hard hearts and he'll give us a heart of flesh that's sensitive to his Holy Spirit and sensitive to sin. The other reason we can know this is true is because it happened to us. It happened to us. Scripture tells us that this is what happens to the believer in Christ, but it happened to us. Some of us have been Christians so long that we've forgotten this. We've forgotten where we came from. But we who are followers of Christ also once had hearts of stone. We who are today followers of Christ also were once slaves of sin as well. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There we see that again. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice sexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, blah, 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 the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers. That's a long list. And it's not exhaustive. We could go on. But it says at the end of this, will inherit the kingdom of God. None of these. And then it says, this is what I want to get at. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed, it says. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, if God can change our hearts, if God can take our hearts of stone and soften them into hearts of flesh, is He not able to change the hearts of those unbelievers whose sin disturbs us? These are the things we must remember as we face the reality that true Christianity is already the minority view in our Western world. That's just the truth, my brothers and sisters. We must be in this world, but not of it. One of my favorite writers, Oz Guinness. Anybody know Oz Guinness, read Oz Guinness? He writes this. He says, the decisive power is always God's through his word and spirit, but on her side, the church contributes three distinct human factors to the equation. <clears throat> Engagement, discernment, and refusal. First, the church 
is called to engage and to stay engaged, to be faithful and obedient in that it puts aside all other preferences of its own and engages purposely, purposefully with the world as its Lord commands. Second, the church is called to discern, to exercise its spiritual and cultural discernment of the best and the worst of the world in its day in order to see clearly where it is to be in and where it is to be not of that world. And third, the church is called to refuse, a grand refusal to conform or to comply with anything and everything in the world that is against the way of Jesus and his kingdom. Now, Guinness also writes that this means more than being what some churches call relevant or seeker-sensitive. We've heard those phrases uh, many times. These churches, he writes, have largely forgotten the required doubleness or deliberate ambivalence of this stance. Evangelicals little realize how much they have become the spiritual smiley button of suburban America. So it feels like Christians are on the defensive with these issues, aren't, aren't we? I mean, we're on the defensive so, with so many things in our culture. A few years ago, I read an article by a pastor named Mark Deaver. He's actually one of the pastors of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. This article was called uh, Principles for Surviving the cultural shifts. Let me share just a few of these with you as part of our message this morning, part of our answer to how we can live wisely redeeming the time. He said that first, we must remember that churches exist to work for supernatural change. We just talked about this hearts of stone and hearts of flesh. Only God can do that, right? The whole Christian faith, he writes, is based on the idea that God takes people who are spiritually dead and gives them a new life. Whenever we evangelize, we are evangelizing the cemetery. There's never been a time or culture when it was natural to repent of your sins. It doesn't come to any of us naturally. That culture doesn't exist and it hasn't existed and it never will exist. Christians must know that we've always been about a work that's supernatural. Let's remember that as we engage with the world. It's not what we do, it's what God does. We just need to be willing and open servants. The second point that Deaver makes is one that we've already referenced. That is that persecution is normal. He wrote that it's most often secondary issues, not the gospel itself, that brings persecution. It's not usually as if a persecutor or somebody who's criticizing you or ostracizing you says, because you believe in the gospel, I'm going to criticize you. That's not how it works. Instead, it's one of the things we believe or practice that contradict what people want or somehow threatens the way they see the world as they oppose us. So even as we recognize this reality, let's avoid the temptation to play the victim here. Persecution is normal. Third, Deaver writes, eschew utopianism. Now, eschew means just keep away from it. Just don't do it. Yes, as Christians, we should strive as individual believers to make our world a better place. However, even as we work for these things, we must remember we are not going to transform the world into the kingdom of our Christ. That's God's work. God hasn't called us to make this world perfect. What he's commissioned us to do primarily is to point to the one who will one day make it perfect even as we spend our lives loving and doing good. So while there are things 
that all of us will do as followers of Christ to make the best use of our time, to redeem the time. Redeeming the time may look different for each of us. There are some who are called to specific issues like abortion or mental health or special needs kids or sex trafficking or poverty or something even a little more mundane which is still part of God's kingdom work like teaching or nursing or business. And we could go down the list. I could point at each and every one of you and say you can do God's kingdom work in whatever you're doing. We have so many examples right here at TCF like this one. There's Chris Staub in her work at Little Lighthouse and here she is with a special needs girl from there. Looks like Minnie Chris, doesn't it? Don't you love that picture? This is just from yesterday when they uh, did the mini laps for little ones at the Little Lighthouse. So individual believers may receive direction from God to be instrumental in changing a specific part of the culture. But the church, the church at large, the church, the, uh, the body of Christ that we belong to, all of us are a part of that, we're called primarily to the gospel. We are all called to point to the only one who can truly bring change in our culture because true heart change happens one heart at a time. And when those individual hearts changed by God's grace reach a critical mass, then that's when the culture truly experiences change. Our task is to focus on the individual callings in engaging with the world to trust that others will be following theirs too and to leave to God the masterminding of the grand outcome. So as Deaver writes, it's appropriate to feel sadness over the growing approval given to sin in our day. But one of the reasons many Christians in America feel disillusionment over the current cultural changes is that we've been somewhat utopian in our hopes. Another point Deaver makes is to trust the Lord and not human circumstances. He writes that there has never been a set of circumstances in which Christians cannot trust God. And boy, 2020 has been an example of how we've had to hang on to that truth, hasn't it? Our God is faithful. He is trustworthy in everything, period. We can name all the things that have happened this year and we can still say, our God is faithful. Now, many of us are worried about the upcoming election. And as Jim Grinnell mentioned a few weeks ago, it is important to pray for our leaders and for our nation. Prayer is a critical component of wise living. We can't dismiss that, since much of what we want to see can only be done by God. If it can only be done by God, we can work and work and work, and it won't matter if we don't pray because God responds to those prayers. But let me remind you, as we think about the upcoming elections and we think about the importance of some of these things, first of all, this may be the most important election of our lifetime, but you know what? They've been saying that every election since I can remember. And I can go back and find quotes from the 1800s. The first quote that I found was somebody who was in the election of 1864 said the same thing. So it's never unimportant, but it's never as important as we think about it. Why? Let me remind you that the church did not need constitutional protections in order to take root in a very hostile pagan culture 2,000 years ago. And so, yes, those things are nice, right? And if we have them, we can rejoice. But God doesn't need them to do his work in America or in the world. 
Also, we must remember that everything we have results from God's grace. We have to remember that anything we get, anything we get, any good thing we get, short of hell, is worth celebrating. Because all that we have is a gift from the merciful God that we serve and who saved us. Keeping this in mind will keep us, will hopefully help keep us from getting bitter toward employers or family or friends or government when they oppose us. Think of this. How could the apostles sing in prison? You know the story. How could they sing in prison? Why? They knew that they had been forgiven. They knew that God's glory awaited them. And they knew that these things were better by far than anything their jailers could do to them. This is a perspective we must remember in the midst of these things. The final thing Deaver writes is this. We need to rest in the certainty of Christ's victory. Scripture tells us very clearly that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You know what? In 2020, we might think this, but Satan, the enemy of our souls, hasn't finally gained the upper hand. Oh, this, that's the year that Satan took over, 2020. Look at all the bad, bad, bad things that happened. Regardless of who wins the upcoming elections, regardless of Supreme Court decisions that disturb us, the institution of same-sex marriage, transgender issues, racial unrest, the abortion culture, the rampant immorality, these things are not the hill that the church finally dies on. We noted last week that there's nothing new under the sun. And followers of Jesus have suffered and are suffering right now, much more than we can even think of. When we talk about persecution, we, we, we have a very low-level persecution, at least for now, here in America. And in a few weeks, we're going to mark the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And once more, we will be reminded of the challenges, the suffering that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world uh, are experiencing today. So when we pray for those brothers and sisters in various nations around the world, we don't assume that God is lost there, do we? If we assume that, why would we even bother to pray? The kingdom of God is in no danger of failing. This must be something we know and believe deeply. We have to hang on to this. No one whom God will save will not be saved because of these seeming setbacks in our culture. One of the things that I realized as I studied and prayed uh, these past couple of weeks for these messages, and I see the cultural challenges, and I see that in many ways we've really lost the argument in our culture on many of these key issues. But I've seen that the way we make the best use of the time is not complicated. It's not complicated. I think our tendency to look for a magic answer, kind of a magical solution to this, makes us think that our response is way more complicated than it needs to be. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's not complicated. The gospel is our means. It's our method. It's our goal. It's our hope. And really all it means to redeem the time, to make the best use of the time, is to be ordinary Christians. Now that may be a letdown to some of you. Boy, I was hoping Bill was going to come up something more, more powerful than that. Wow. Because maybe you were hoping for that magic answer. But a study of the Word tells us just this. We see it in many, many places in the Word of God. I found more than two dozen 
where this word walk is used. And of course, walk means essentially it's how we behave, it's how we live. Even the opening verses of the chapter in which our primary text is found says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I said it wasn't complicated. I didn't say it was easy. It's not complicated, but it's also not necessarily easy. But Paul tells us we redeem the time when we walk in love as Christ loved us. And if we wonder how Christ loved us, Paul reminds us that he gave himself up for us. He loved us how? Sacrificially. As Jim Garrett has taught us about everyone's favorite passage, John 3.16, which of course says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Where it says God so loved, what it means essentially is this is how he loved. This is how God loved. He gave. He loved by giving his son sacrificially. That's how God loved us. Now, we don't have time to explore this morning all the places in the word where we're encouraged to walk in a certain way in light of the fact that the days are evil. And I'm not going to list the dozens of places I found this, but I want to list some for those of you who are note takers here this morning. These are passages you might want to refer to that refer to how we walk in Christ. Romans 8, a couple from 2 Corinthians, a couple passages from Ephesians, and one from Colossians. Now these verses talk about what we might consider to be everyday Christian virtues like humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. That's not that exciting stuff, isn't it? It's, it's pretty ordinary. It's not very revolutionary. Maybe not the quick and easy strategy that we're hoping for to fix our world. But these are God's instructions on how to live as his followers. Again, this is pretty ordinary stuff. You're not going to find a best-selling, well, you might find some good Christian books about it, but they're not going to be best-sellers. You're not going to find this be the theme of a big Christian conference. Yet, this is what God calls each of us to. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that actually pretty encouraging. Rather than being disappointed that there's no quick and easy or big mega answer to this, I find it pretty encouraging. I don't always have to have perfect answers, although it's always wise to look to the Lord for godly responses to moral challenges. I don't have to start a big ministry. I don't have to start some big organization to affect change, though some of us may be called to do just that. Or if we don't start it, we may be called to work with such a ministry. I can seek God's grace to live out my ordinary life and still have an impact. And that applies to each and every one in this room. Still redeeming the time in these evil days. I can do as we would read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So again, we see that word again, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So again, this is, this is recognizing that outsiders are seeing how we live our lives. They're seeing our attitudes. They're seeing our behavior. They're seeing how we respond to all the tough stuff that's happening in our culture. It says, so that you may walk properly, you may live properly, they'll see it. And that's going to be part of what it means to redeem the time. 
course, outsiders here are unbelievers. And I want to throw in one quick caveat here. I don't want you to hear me say that all we got to do is live our lives and people will come to Christ. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the gospel must at some point be spoken, preached, shared. We can't expect just our godly lives to draw people to Christ. Nevertheless, we see that this is a critical beginning and one that applies to all of us. Live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Walk properly. Live properly before outsiders. May this be our primary call. Now, some of us are going to have additional parts to that. We're going to do things that God's given us to do to advance his kingdom. But even as God calls us to specific works, may this be our goal as we redeem the time in these evil days and walk wisely in the world. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for these very clear admonitions in your word or how we can walk wisely, how we can redeem the time, Father. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to uh, live in such a way that our lives would indeed be winsome. Lord, we know that even if that's true, there may still be persecution. We see this example in the New Testament as the uh, apostles uh, spread the gospel in the early days of the Christian church, and they were persecuted, and we trust that they were walking wisely, but they were speaking the truth. And so, Lord, help us to find this right perspective, Lord, where we walk wisely, where we live out our faith in a very real way, where we believe what your word says about your character, about your plans, about your purposes, and about the way we are to redeem the time. And Lord, we pray that in this, you would give us great opportunities to seek your face and to be very intentional about looking for opportunities to bring your gospel to a watching world and to be faithful to participate with your purposes in advancing your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.